You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me today. I truly appreciate it. Today we are going to talk about stakeholder capitalism. What is it? What does that mean for your future, our future as a country? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it in between? We'll talk about it. Uh, Joining me today is David McGarry, who is a Consumer Choice Fellow with Young Voices. He writes extensively on tech policy and consumer choice issues and has appeared in such publications as Real Clear Policy and National Review. David, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me on. And, uh, listener, we have just a little bit of a delay between the two of us, so I apologize if that causes any issues or anything, but I read your article, The Nonsense of Stakeholder Capitalism, in The Spectator, and it caught my eye. Uh, you, you ended the piece with a Milton Friedman quote, which he called, uh, he, you write, corporations should reject practice, practices that violate the quote-unquote basic rules of society both those embodied in law and embodied in ethical custom, and government should check their work. You continue, but to continue our species' triumphant route of poverty and disease to maximize innovation and wealth creation, the core purpose of business must remain to conduct business. Uh, So what is stakeholder capitalism and how does it violate that sentiment? Stakeholder capitalism is the notion that businesses have a an obligation to really, really um, serve all of their quote-unquote stakeholders, which, depending on whose definition you're using, can really be just about anyone. Um, and the the situation that you that you get is not just quote-unquote ethical practices. Another Milton Friedman point is that if stakeholder capitalism, although he didn't use the term, but essentially if stakeholder capitalism um, meant conducting business in an ethical manner, then it would be a redundant, pointless uh, concept. And so the, the real problem that we get ourselves into is that resources are scarce. And when enough companies divert resources from innovating and providing good, cheap products to their customer bases and maximizing their shareholders, uh, the, the shareholder value of their um, of their company, you end up with a situation that, um, excuse me, you end up with a situation where growth and innovation are really held back. And another point that I outline in my piece is that capitalism has done great things for the world. Capitalism has driven incredible gains in wealth. Um, This goes back into the dawn of liberal democratic capitalism around the Enlightenment period. And we see these correlations coming up to the present day. You can look at China post Mao. You can look at India's recent uh, wealth gains. Um, Look no further than the, uh, the Western European countries and the Scandinavians who after World War II, really went in a much more regulated socialist direction with their economies, and they realized it wasn't working. And although they maintain um, generous, shall we say, welfare states, they have removed a lot of restrictions that allow their economies to flourish. Yeah, I think look at the direction of Russia and China post-communism. Uh, and the, I mean, China 
any year now is going to beat us in terms of economic growth as it has more um, become, I want to say more liberal, definitely not more democratic, but more capitalist. Uh, So let's talk about ESG scores. We just uh, did an episode on ESG scores, so we don't have to go too far into it. It stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. What is an ESG score and how does that fit into stakeholder capitalism? So ESG and stakeholder capitalism are two concepts that have a lot of overlapping um, effects on markets, right? Uh, so it just it, the way I, the way I see it again, different people define it very differently. The way as a sidebar is one of the problems with both both concepts, um, their their lack of de- definition, but in but they're they both essentially move towards the same goal, which is using capital and resources in non-productive ways um which of course if you're a if you're a if you're a charity or you're a privately held company do with your money and your resources as you choose that's your that's your prerogative but unfortunately these days too many executives and also too many um hedge fund managers which um often manage the funds of everyday americans who haven't really signed on to all this nonsense um they are they are co-opting their um they're they're co-opting their positions and moving in this esg or stakeholder capitalism or stakeholder capitalist route all right so let me push back so shareholder capitalism is sort of where we've been for a a while now a really i'd say what post-world war ii um maybe a lot longer than that where you have uh the markets in operation and you can buy a share of a company and you get return on your investment in that company. And uh, then the job of the company in shareholder capitalism is to return value to that investor by growing. And growth is essential to a shareholder capitalistic uh, concept. And as you've said, innovation is a huge part of that. Profit is not a bad thing. Uh, because that shows growth. That means more employees, more ideas, more sales, right? In stakeholder capitalism, the concept is a little bit different. You're taking some of that profit and you're investing it into projects or um, ideological investments, issues of justice, maybe um, nonprofits, civil sector. Do, Do I have that right? Like, what are some of the ways that a stakeholder company would take and divert some of the profits towards ESG goals? What are some examples? Sure, that, that no, that's what a, are some that's examples a, that you've seen? That's a fantastic question. Um, and I'll sort of give a few different examples of how, of how these trends are playing out currently. So number one, there, um, there are investment funds, which again, oftentimes usually manage the 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 money that that is been earned by everyday Americans, um, who will invest in in opportunities that are just not as profitable as, um, or I should say, invest in ESG opportunities that are simply not as profitable as regular opportunities. And I think there's a real question there: Are you fulfilling your fiduciary duty? by taking, you know, uh, Grandma Mildred's retirement fund and not getting the best return that you can on it. 
when that was the agreement that the two of you had going into it. Um, an another element, and this is this is where I will go back to the the Milton Friedman point, um, is that is that we have to consider is that if a if a company say decides to, or I should say if a corporate executive decides to um, source all of their all of their gadgets X Y or Z gadgets say from from some uh, from from some supplier that matches their environmental mental goals. Um, if it's a private company, you know, again, I, I can, I can question your, your business decisions, but it's your money, do whatever, do whatever you want to. But if you've been hired to make, um, to make the maximum profit for the people you work for, if you're hired as an executive, you have a duty to, again, fulfill your job and to do your job and to, and to maximize funds. Um, where the Milton Friedman point that I was trying to wrap into that, uh, I will all just sort of stick in at the tail end here. Um, again, it, this isn't saying that companies shouldn't behave ethically sort of in the in the the way that ethical business practices that term is generally understood. Right. The, if that's all that stakeholder capitalism and ESG meant, that's then the, the terms, again, are, are, are meaningless. Um, and if you actually look at the specific proposals that are coming out of the uh, the people who push for these things, you'll see that, again, they don't really mean, oh, just, you know, give your employees a wage so they'll perform better. Um, I mean, that could be that could be a small part of an ESG proposal. But at the end of the day, there is a lot more that gets added on to that as well. All right, so my uh, my toddler's downstairs watching the Muppets Christmas Carol right now. And based on the time, I'm guessing that... Uh, the two men just walked into uh, Ebenezer Scrooge's office and asked for money for the poor, and he's kicking them out of the office. Uh, it, that's sort of what it sounds like. I'm not going to lie to you, David. If a company wants to take some of their profits and maybe spend a little bit more on a more sustainable supply uh, chain item or maybe give some of that money to um, – you know, something like like Bank of America, for instance, funds leadership camps as part of their efforts. Is that really a bad thing? What is, you know, are you just being an Ebenezer Scrooge here at Christmas time? Am I being unfair? Well, well, I, I don't think you're necessarily being unfair, but I think there is a response that would mitigate your concerns. So, so again, I, I'm a big fan of, of private charity, like any, like any, libertarian who wants to create a workable society, there has to be something that um, that comes into the government's place, right? We can't just say no one helps anyone. The answer is that private individuals, um, <clears throat> the private individuals give uh, give charity or even even I don't have a problem if, if companies give charity. But again, it's, it's a matter of degree, right? If, if we're saying that charity can be given and charity should be given indeed, um, that's different from saying we have to completely reorient it the practices of business um, around in a, in, a, in a radical way, which is again really what we're talking about here, um, in a way that if applied large scale would stifle stifle production. And this gets to another part of your challenge, which I think is very fair. Um, but we have to remember again that innovation and um, and uh, capitalist. Uh, drive and entrepreneurship have in a very real way helped so many people. Um, we're not just talking talking about, oh, you want to pay, you know, 10 cents less on, on X, Y, or Z item, right? 
We're talking about entire societies being lifted out of poverty. We're talking about um, we're talking about really un 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 previously unknown levels of wealth. And I mean, we, we can we can look at that from either just a an absolute perspective, just just from um, we can look at it as as an absolute thing from sort of our our perspective sitting over here um in in really cushy america which which is you know far more far more well off than most other countries are if not almost all other countries are um but but we have to look at the incredible quality of life increase that has gone that has gone really appreciated all over the world right and again we can we can look at are we can look at the where we are right and say oh i'd pay you know 10 more dollars for those shoes um or whatnot but if we overly burden the um we overly burden the market both as regulators or as private businesses we can run ourselves into a really really bad place um we shouldn't be content with the the stage that we're at right we shouldn't be content to say oh we've innovated enough we're done right we need to solve cancer, right? We need to, we, we have a whole host of societal problems and we have um, really the incredible potential to build more wealth and improve more lives and bring more people both in our country and around the world out of poverty. And we should take advantage of that. Again, none of this is to say, is none of this is to argue against private charity. Give private charity. That is very good. Um, yeah, I, I guess in other words, you're saying, listen, the, the purpose of a corporation, the purpose of a company, the purpose of the job is to solve a problem, Right. People start companies because there's a problem that they want solved and nobody else is solving it. So they hop in and, you know, I, in the marketplace, I'm the only reasonable libertarian podcast, for instance. That's the marketplace that I serve. That's not fair. But, um, you know, and so for me to divert some of that towards something else would almost be a dereliction of duty. So, and if you're Eli Lilly, for instance, and you work on solving the problem of reliable medication for what should be a low price, uh, then diverting monies towards other things. It's it's not uh, it's not uh, it's what's the word uh, the economic term I'm thinking of. It's uh, an inefficient use of resources because there's going to be other organizations and other companies that are focusing on those goals. And to the a point in your article that you make. Uh, ESG funds average lower returns than the broader market, 6.3% to 8.9%. Um, and so, therefore, investors on the other end who would give their money to charity or would start other businesses have less capital to make their personal decisions because at the top, more capital is being diverted in ways that sort of make the company look better. Yeah, I think all that's true. And and again, I would go back to um, how much of this is good citizenship and how much of this is a fundamental reorientation of the purpose of the um, of the business or investment firm. Um, and again, I, I'm, I may be a broken record here, but there is a moral good in making people's lives better. There's a moral good in lifting people out of poverty. Um, and yeah, you're essentially saying companies companies do good why do we not treat them like their charity right we have this attitude the anti-capitalistic mentality that 
corporations and profit are necess- an, you know, an, an evil, a necessary evil. Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll shy slightly away from saying we should we should treat companies like charities. But I, but 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 yes. But well, I'm, I mean, by that I mean like you know, charities always do good, and businesses always do evil, and charities clean up the evil that the businesses do. It's very black and white. Right. Well, I mean, this is a very Walter Williams esque point, but you know, the the moral the moral good of capitalism is that you make money by helping other people. You make money by providing others goods and services. And of course, that's a that's a very simplified version of the world. And there's a lot of there's a lot of messy edges to that. But at its core, it's true. So you mentioned in the article that Tesla's current ESG score by two leading ratings agencies are those below of Pepsi. Now let's do the math on that, David. Tesla, the company that is trying to create batteries that will uh, be more sustainable for everybody in cars that choke out less carbon emissions, versus Pepsi, which is literally part of the reason that I'm on uh, medications, right? Like, how does a Pepsi have a better ESG score than a Tesla? No, that's the question. That's exactly the question. Um, and And I think that speaks to the lack of definition that these phrases have been given. There's no, there's no one accepted um, uh, meaning for ESG. There's no one accepted meaning for exactly what, for, for stakeholder capitalism, right? There's a lot of people who play fast and loose um, with, with these terms. Um, And, and I think, I think that speaks to, or I should say, I think that leaves these terms open for exploitation by people who really want to take them in a pretty radical direction. Let's talk about that. I feel like we've kind of tap, tap dance around it, but all of this, you know, with BlackRock and the episode that we just did on ESG scores, um, full disclosure, I read Glenn Beck's Great Reset book because I wanted to understand what that term meant, and he talked a lot about Davos. You mentioned the Davos Manifesto and the World Economic Forum in your piece, it, it, and it really feels like we're kind of talking about um, if you were on one side of the COVID debate, you were good. If you're on one side of the COVID debate, you were bad. If you were on one side of this, you know, if you thought one thing about Hunter's laptop, right? Like there, that sort of mentality of this is just the truth and you need to accept it. Like if I were to say that Buffalo got 77 inches of snow because of global warming, I'd be good. If I said they got it because uh, global warming didn't exist, I'd get a tag on Facebook for that. Is that sort of the mentality that's being applied to business is that this is the right think and companies that don't agree with the right think we're going to lower their ESG score and therefore they can't get access to new capital or they aren't going to get included in these specific funds and get more investment. In some quarters, certainly. Um, the, the, the issue that a lot of people on the left fall into, and I want to be careful not to speak in overgeneralizations, but I think the issue that a lot of people on the left fall into um, is that they turn opinions into um into moral positions so what i mean by that is that if a a lot of people believe that if you don't share the same assessment of the facts it's because you are a bad human being um and then they (laughs) go on to treat the people who happen to disagree with them as bad human beings um and and one thing that we're allowed to tell bad human beings is that they don't deserve 
to have their um, to have their opinions considered on the same or level to participate in society. People. You can't go to restaurants. <laughs> you can't go see the documents of freedom unless you behave. I mean, yeah, sure, and and there's there's in another trend on the left is is an exclusionary trend that's really been around for quite a long time and is is very concerning. Um, that this they seem to hold that if we can just sort of ignore and um, shunt the the wrong thinkers off into the corner, they somehow will stop existing, and that just doesn't bear with reality. No, it just makes their them like the Republican Party is more Trumpy because of the silos that they've created than anything else before they were being checked. Like Alex Jones took over the Republican Party in a lot of ways because he was kicked off social media. Um, that's for another podcast. I, you don't need to respond to that. That's uh, me. Um, uh, but I, I guess to to what degree I asked our other guest on ESG scores this because. You know, if you read a Glenn Beck book, right, it's a global conspiracy by Klaus Schwab to take over the world and move us to um, corporate fascism. You know, so so like I see the problems in what you're saying and I see the um, the lack of investment that is made in one direction versus the other. And I get what you're saying, um, but it doesn't sound like you're panicking. Right. But like Glenn Beck, of course, told me I should panic about the concept of stakeholder capitalism and ESG scores. Like, where's the where where are we at? Like, judge freak out level. Should I dig up my silver and move to the mountains because stakeholder capitalism is coming out of Wharton Business School? Or let's keep an eye on this. Do you understand my question? Like, what's the degree here of concern over stakeholder capitalism? Sure. So, so first of all, I just want to get it on record that I think one should always dig up one silver and head for the mountains. Um, <laughs> okay. But, um, but, but I think it, I think it's a good one. Um, I, I think that the real fight on this stuff um, is, or I shouldn't say the real fight, um, as concerning as a lot of the private sector, um, the private sector applications of these concepts are. We have to be really, really, really vigilant against um, regulators who are trying to put this into put these these principles into law. So, for example, in my article, I talk about an SEC proposal that would require incredibly onerous environmental uh, reporting uh, standards to the in standards which are would would basically force um, companies in some point to report back into the people in their supply chains. And the whole thing's so crazy that there's an argument that it wouldn't even work and is just impossible to um, comply with. So, so to me, I'm not I'm not going to quite start running to the to the hills until more of this stuff gets into the government. I think we're already seeing a slow but hopeful blowback against the private sector um, the private sector application of these principles um, because as as um, I outlined in my article, these principles don't don't work economically, right? The people who advance them say that trade-offs don't exist. They say that everything will be hunky-dory, then they can do A and do B and, you know, have their cake and eat it too. But at the end of the day, trade-offs are real, right? A dollar towards uh, Project X will not be given to Project Y. That's the end of the story, right? This is this is the study of economics that, that goes back to Adam Smith and, and before. Um, 
And, and at the end of the day, people are starting to realize, oh, wait, maybe I don't want my money in, um, in a fund that will not give me the, the, the lump sum for retirement that I could have in another case. All right. Well, David McGarry, thank you so much for bringing this to our attention and for your time. Let's do a little bit of shameless, shameless self-promotion. Where can people follow you and learn more about your work and, and uh, what you write about? You can find me on Twitter at David B. McGarry. I am active there. You can also find me on the Young Voices um, website. Uh, you can find the profile with my profile with links to all of my work. And I will throw out another shameless plug. I had an article go up this morning, Tuesday, as we record this um, at National Review that talks about why a lot of the freak out around Twitter and Elon Musk are unfounded um, or is unfounded and why Twitter isn't a monopoly and we shouldn't consider it a public square. That's interesting. Uh, if you have five minutes or less um, or time for one more question, um, why is it not a public square? I get that it's not a monopoly because I can share my uh, blowhard rants anywhere, right? Um, but why do you not consider it an important public square? Or am I misstating so, it? Well, so, I mean, I, I would say the, the platform is surely important, right? But when people describe it as the public square... Um, there is the implication of that metaphor. The the implication is that um, far more people are on Twitter than actually are. Only about a quarter of Americans report using Twitter, according to Pew Data. Um, and out of the base of Twitter users, only about a quarter of them generate most of the content. So basically what we end up with is a bubble with um, a bunch of very political, um, very loud, generally very elite users who are all shouting at each other and furiously agreeing with each other. Um, and then they come back to the rest of us and they try to tell us that um, that's the actual essence of American discourse. And it's, it's, it's just simply not. It's nerds. True. It's nerds who weren't popular in high school. I know. And they are finally popular somewhere. And journalists finally have a place to be popular. And they're upset that it's going away or that it might go well, away or it's not what they want. I, th I think the last one is really the important one um, because when you when you you know see the Ted Cruz's and the Josh Hawley scream about regulating social media, or if you watch the um, various left wing people uh, just blow quote unquote concerns over disinformation out of completely out of proportion. Safety um, is the they, new term. CBS left because of safety. Sure, um, and. Um, but, but we can see these people really just want to have a little space that conforms to their perfect, um, their perfect idea of what their little bubble should be. Um, and that's just not what any of us should expect from Twitter at the end of the day. All right. Very good. Thanks so much for joining me, David. Thanks so much for having me. Always a blast. Thanks so much for joining me here on The Chris Spangle Show. And if you got something out of this, please share with your friends and family. That is the best way that you can help a podcast grow. And thank you for being here, and we'll see you again soon. Before we start, I want to thank all of the Weird Libertarians patrons for being a part of the show. You can find out all of the benefits of subscribing on Patreon at joinwallplus.com. That's W-A-L-plus.com. You'll get bonus content, access to the complete archives. There's over a thousand shows that you can't get in the public feed, and you'll be supporting all of our great shows. 
Thank you especially to our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nordskog, Jake Dell, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. We also want to thank our main sponsor for this episode. Uh, it is Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. And even if you get health insurance from your employer that doesn't work for you, Matt Allen and Iconic Insurance can help you find the right insurance. Just head over right now and contact him at iconic-insurance.com slash libertarians. We'll put the link in the description if you can't remember that. But Matt is a longtime listener of this program and a great guy and a good friend of mine. So please go support him and reach out right now. Thank you. And now let's get started with our show.